in a series on the fruit of the Spirit. And you can find the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5. I'm going to read them for you now, and I'll have them on the screen as well. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And this morning, we're going to be talking about the fruit of peace. Now, we cannot talk about peace until we talk about peace's arch enemy, which is anxiety. Let's uh, give us a definition, a working definition to agree on. Anxiety, generally speaking, is this. It's a feeling of worry, nervousness, or unease, typically about an imminent event or something with an uncertain outcome. Uh, In fact, anxiety is your body's natural response to perceived threats. Now, as we define anxiety here, I want want to note a couple things. First and foremost, uh, this anxiety, as we describe it here, is not inherently bad or sinful. In fact, anxiety seems to be something, a, a response that God has created and woven into the very fabric of our bodies so that when there is a perceived threat, our body responds and we're able to actually make good decisions based on what is true and right in front of us. Anxiety is a signal um, put in our bodies by God to let us know something is wrong. There is a possible or real threat. Now, um, in the book of Matthew chapter 6, verse 25, Jesus says this, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, Paul in Philippians 4, 6. He says, do not be anxious about anything. Is this definition of anxiety what Jesus and the Apostle Paul are talking about? This is where you shake your head and say, no. In fact, they're talking about something a little bit different, a little bit deeper. Um, what I want to share with you now is a clinical definition of anxiety. This is a bit more nuanced, and this is going to be the defini- definition of anxiety we're going to use from here on out. Uh, the clinical definition is this. It's a nervous disorder characterized by a state of excessive uneasiness and apprehension, typically, not always, but typically with compulsive behavior or panic attacks. So in light of this definition, rhetorical question, which means you don't answer out loud, do you have anxiety? In light of this definition, is there something that brings deep anxiety to you? Let me give you a couple options. Most commonly, it's money and finances, children, your job, relationships, or maybe one single relationship, marriage issues. Here's one, the election, (laughs) right? Uh, Paul Tripp is an author and a pastor, and here's what he says. He says, a good thing becomes a bad thing when it becomes a controlling thing. A good thing becomes a bad thing when it becomes a controlling thing. So how do I know when anxiety, which is a God-created physiological response to imminent danger, uh, how do I know when uh, anxiety has gone from a good thing there to serve me and protect me to a bad thing? There's two ways. Number one, I am feeding it rather than facing it. I am feeding it rather than facing it. So as the thoughts go through my brain, I am ruminating on them and I'm visiting them and I'm I'm, I'm feeding the monster of anxiety. And by the way, when you feed the monster of anxiety, what does it do? It grows and it becomes even more vicious. Here's the second 
way that you can know your anxiety has become a controlling thing. When I am stuck in it, rather than moving through it. I'm not just stuck in it, but as I'm stuck in it, uh, I am ruminating on it, and I can't just seem to get out of it. Now, at this point, we always have to make um, a side comment about the nature of anxiety. Um, There are some of you who have anxiety, and it is a hormonal um, issue in your body. Something has happened, and it is uh, something that you and a doctor need to deal with. For most people and for many people, Anxiety, that you, the anxiety you feel is the result of feeding the monster over and over and over again. Now, I don't think anybody intentionally wants to feed the monster. In fact, many of us just do what comes natural to us, or we do the very things that we've learned from other people. But the net result of this is that anxiety has kind of taken a life of its own inside of you. And it's grown and it's grown. And, and as it's grown, if you feel more and more helpless, and so you feel stuck. And so we know that anxiety is probably uh, not a good thing for you. It is a controlling thing when you are feeding it or when you're stuck in it. Now I want to give you an illustration of anxiety and I'm going to let you guys decide whether or not you think this is a good level of anxiety or a bad level of anxiety. Sound good? You can debate about this in your community groups. Uh, my wife, she thinks what I'm about to tell you is a bad level of anxiety. So this summer we had the opportunity to go out west on my sabbatical and we were at Zion National Park. Now you have to know this about Zion. It is strikingly beautiful and huge. So we had just come from Yellowstone before this, and Yellowstone is just magnificent if you've ever been there. And when I got to Zion, it was kind of a different level of grandeur that my brain just had a very hard time getting its head around. And so when you're in Zion and you see these pictures I'm about to show you, you need to know that everything, every picture you take of Zion, uh, because of the size and then how far, how far away you are from certain things, uh, probably everything is about two to three times just kind of bigger than the pictures show. I want to show you this next picture. This is a hike that we decided to go on. Now, as you see right there, um, that is a cliff. And from this angle, it looks like you would just kind of roll down it. But no, if you fell down that cliff, I would pretty confidently say that you would be dead, okay? Um, just say that. But what, right, what is right up there, actually, is a path. And this path goes right around along this cliff. It was about a 100-degree day. Just under that, felt like 110. We're all tired. My kids are dehydrated at the time. They are 7, 9, and 11 years old. And so I want to show you this next picture. <clears throat> this is my 11-year-old. And this right here is that little really dangerous part. Now, do you see what's coming off the, off the side there? It's called water. <laughs> and when water's there, water just adds a slippery element, okay? So I am watching this scenario, and what is my heart doing? I am freaking out. Now, I didn't take this picture. My wife took this picture, and she just, she was totally calm. She's like, my kids got it. They're awesome. They're amazing. They're adventures. It'll be fine. I'm having a freak out. In fact, I think my son and my daughter were right in front of me, and I am like literally walking right behind them, like petrified that they're going to fall over to their death. And all of these scenarios are going through my brain. What if? What if? What if? What if? Which is sinful anxiety's favorite question. What if? This is the question that feeds the monster, right? So I'm going through in my brain and I'm thinking, oh my goodness, this is stressing me out. Go to the next picture here. 
So we get to the end of the trail, and this is my wife, and this is this big rock. And, and so I was freaking out, and I'm like, Bree, listen, you cannot go any further than this. You're going to fall to your death. It's going to be terrible. I'm having a freak out here. My brain is just imploding in on itself. And what if, what if, what if, what if? Uh, I, I, I think if you were rational with me in that moment, I, no, I probably couldn't have gotten out of it. So she, totally calm, totally cool, totally collected. I'm like, don't go any further. Just please, for my own sanity, don't go any further. So here's the picture she takes. Do you see that little, like, cro- cro- like supposed to be an X? It turned into a cross like it was a, like she died? She didn't die. Um, so she leans over, and that is a huge cliff. And I'm like, why are you doing this to me? My response is the following picture. I take all my kids and I put them under a huge rock and I'm like, don't move for the love of God, right? And all I can think about is, oh my gosh, this is, my brain is just swirling and my insides are just all tumultuous. And, and uh, there was a grandma and grandpa there in their late seventies and they were there with two of their grandkids and they were probably four and five years old. And these kids, I mean, the, the grandparents were so stressed out at one point, they just started yelling at the grandkids because what do you do when you have all this pent up anxiety? Uh, many people, they yell, well, that's what the grandparents did. And, and the whole time I'm like, we are never going on this hike again. Going back, I just, I got done and I said, Jesus, thank you. Thank you. We're all alive. They didn't fall off a cliff. We got back to um, uh, the internet uh, later that afternoon because there's like no internet access in Zion anywhere. We got a little bit of internet, and the first thing I did is I looked up how many people have died in Zion. And then I looked up what happens to the human body when they fall off a cliff, and that did not help my anxiety in any way, shape, or form. My wife says, by the way, that only five people have died at Zion National Park. I can't remember the the number, but um, I feel like the number's larger, (laughs) which is always a reliable way to measure truth and reality. Um, Anxiety is not a good friend, is it? Like when it's there to protect you and to protect others, but, but, but when it gets out of control and it starts to control you, it's not really a good friend. And I think many of us have understood this. And again, sinful anxiety's favorite question is, what if? What if, what if, what if, what if? And as you ask the question, it feeds the monster. Let's talk about anxiety in America. Anxiety disorders are the most common mental illness, by the way, in the U.S., affecting 40 million adults over the age of 18. That is, 18% of the population has some level of struggle with this in a very real way. People with an anxiety disorder are three to five times more likely to go to the doctor, six times more likely to be hospitalized for psychiatric disorders. Anxiety disorders develop from a, com- from a complex set of factors, including genetics, brain chemistry, personality, decisions that we make on an everyday basis and big life events. You can't really look at one person and say, you have anxiety because of X. Everyone's story with this is very different. If you haven't noticed, the entire world runs on fear. Politicians and marketing agencies have learned this, that if they stoke your fear, you give them your money and your loyalty and you're moved. This is a powerful, powerful human experience. And I want to just make this clear. Anxiety is the mental health issue of our day. And no longer does it discriminate between adults and kids as if it ever did. But now we're learning, it seems, that um, students at junior high, even earlier, are experiencing profound amounts of anxiety in ways that we never even 
experienced historically ever. It's powerful. In fact, you find sometimes fifth, sixth, seventh graders speaking with clinical language, learning to identify the mental health issues that they have, particularly anxiety and the emotions that, that go with it. Um, this vocabulary has become very common language for junior high and high school and college age students. This is the mental health crisis of our day, by the way. All right, let's discuss the other side of the coin, the fruit that God wants to grow in every single one of you, and that fruit is peace. So a generic definition of peace is this. It's the absence of conflict, violence, and turmoil. And the word peace, it comes from a Greek word, arene, but um, let's just be clear. Uh, Jesus, when he was with the disciples, even though the New Testament is written in Greek, is this the language they spoke? And you say, no, it's not, Pastor Michael. Um, they spoke Aramaic, which was a sub-language in the, in the Hebrew language family. And let me tell you the word that Jesus would have used when he was with his disciples when they were talking about peace. He would have used the word shalom. Now, shalom on the surface, it's a Jewish greeting, uh, but the most literal meaning of the word shalom is complete or whole, lacking nothing. Uh, the imagery might be of a brick with no cracks, completely whole, able to do its job, or of a wall where there are no cracks in the wall, the wall is strong, it is whole, it is complete. When something has shalom, it has been made right, it is whole, it is as it should be, it is at peace. And this word is a deep cultural and theological uh, meaning and, and implication to it. And so here's what shalom means. This is how we define it. It is inner peace from God that explodes into the physical realm and relationships bringing wholeness out of chaos. Let me describe it this way. I want you to imagine the kingdom of God is filled with shalom. Everywhere the kingdom of God goes, everywhere it infiltrates, it brings shalom with it. It takes things that are chaos and chaotic and disorderly, and it brings wholeness and completion to it. And so when the kingdom of God is coming to the earth, everywhere the kingdom of God touches, it begins to create shalom. Now, let's just say chaos is a formidable foe, which we've all experienced. And the two are at odds with each other, but shalom is like light and chaos is like darkness. And in the battle between light and darkness, inevitably, who wins? Light does. You turn on the darkness, the light inevitably flees. Well, in this battle of shalom and chaos, this wages war, not just on the outside of us in the world, that's the overflow of the real battle, which is person by person, heart by heart, where the shalom of God wants to come into the chaos of your mind and your heart and bring supernatural, otherworldly peace. And that peace doesn't just stop in your head and in your heart, but it explodes into your relationships. And this is what Jesus wants to offer by his spirit to every person who has placed their faith in Jesus. And I want to just say this on the front end. Jesus does not make promises he can't keep. Jesus does not offer things that are so elusive that they're impossible. Although I know that I know that I know I'm talking to a group of people. Statistically speaking, the majority of you in this last season have experienced profound anxiety. Some of you for the first time ever, and you don't have a clue what the next step is to overcome it. And I hope this sermon helps you to that end. I want you to open up your Bibles. Uh, the book of John chapter 14. We're going to have, we're going to walk through three verses today, verses 25 through 27, John chapter 14. We're going to watch in John 14 is one of the most catalytic events in the disciples' lives. This is huge. They're, they are in this chapter coming to grips 
was something that Jesus has been talking about for a long time to them. If you were one of the 12 disciples, you would have regularly heard Jesus say the following. I am going to be killed. I'm going to be crucified. I'm going to suffer. The religious leaders are going to do it. I'm going to die on a cross. I'm going to raise again in three days. And then I'm going to go away. Like this is not new information if you have been following Jesus with him, walking around with him, listening to him teach. He didn't hide this from them. But like the disciples nowadays, like we just need to hear it like 30 times until it makes sense, right? That they just couldn't grasp this idea. Finally, in John 14, they are finally coming to grips with this reality. In fact, they seem to be on their way to Jerusalem. And Jesus is like, you need to understand because it's a couple days away. I am going away. And I'm going to come back, but only for a little while. And then I'm going to go away for a long time. And you're going to spend the rest of your lives without my physical presence here with you. And here's what happens in verse 25. He says, these things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. What are are these things? All of the times he's told them I'm going away. And it's like a light bulb went off in the disciples' head. And they're like, wait a minute, he's going away. Like, this is real. And he's like, yes, it's real. These things I have told you over and over again. I am going away and I am going to die. And the very prospect of Jesus leaving them for the rest of their lives throws them into this, seems like, anxious series of events where their brain starts spinning and they start going, what if, what if, what if, what if? In fact, John was so gracious to actually show us at least four of the disciples' immediate response to to them actually getting this fact that Jesus is going away. And so they all start freaking out and pelting Jesus with questions. The first one, if you go back a chapter, comes from Peter in John 13, 36. Peter says to Jesus, Lord, where are you going? And at this moment, like if you're Jesus, you're like, oh my goodness. How many times do I have to tell you? I am going to die. That is what I've been telling you. But Peter's what if? What if I lose you? I cannot lose you. What if you go away? How can I live without you? What if, what if, what if? Jesus answers Peter and he says to him, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterwards. You're not going to die yet, but you will die eventually. In John 14, verse one and two, Jesus says, let not your hearts be troubled. What was happening in the disciples' hearts? Fear, trouble, Anxiety, what if, what if, what if? He says, believe in God, believe also in me. Then Thomas chimes in in John 14, verse five. Thomas says, Lord, I mean, just hear panic in their voice. We don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? What if he abandons us? What if he just leaves us? What if we can't find him? What if, what if? What if? So Jesus says to Thomas, doubting Thomas, never knowing what to believe. He knows the truth, but his heart just can't catch up to his mind. He says in verse six, Jesus responds, Thomas, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Implication, you know me. 
You have access to the Father. It's interesting that that statement is said in response to an anxious question, concerned about what life might be like without Jesus in his presence. Third, Philip chimes in in verse 8. Philip says to him, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. Like on the one hand, it's a ridiculous question because what happened in, when Moses saw God in the Old Testament, God's like, you can only see like, I don't know, a little piece of my back through a crack in a rock, you know, and, and he ends up glowing for days. Like the glory of God would just kill him. But, but Jesus is like, oh my gosh, show us the Father Philip, what is wrong with you? And Philip's like, what if we can't find you? Like, what if you're not who you say you are? What if, what if, what if, what if? So Jesus says to Philip, Have I been with you so long? I want you to hear Jesus' exasperation. Have I been with you so long and you still don't know me, Philip? Whoever's seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? We have talked about this. Now, if you're seeing a common theme, anxiety doesn't let us think our best thoughts, does it? Anxiety doesn't allow us to remember the truth of the past and apply it to the present. Anxiety messes with our brain. And Jesus is like, come on, guys. Well, then Judas Iscariot, or Judas not Iscariot, the good Judas, not the bad one, he chimes in in verse 22. And he says, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? What if this is a hoax? This doesn't make any sense. How how am I supposed to put all this together? And they have a, a common cry and a common concern, Jesus We've invested our entire lives into following you. We've given up everything to be a part of this thing. We've told our families that you're going to be, you're the king of Israel. You're going to be the king of the world. You're the fulfillment of the prophecies. You're going to bring global peace. Like we have staked our entire identity and reputation on you. And now you're going to tell us like you're going away. Like this doesn't make any sense. Why would you do this? How how are you going to be able to conquer Rome if you let Rome kill you? And it's like, how many times does he have to say this over and over again? So I want to just ask you a question. Why why do you think these guys are freaking out? Because they are freaking out. They are filled with anxiety and what ifs. Well, I I think the more familiar sometimes we become with Jesus and the disciples and reading these stories, we forget how utterly important relationally, Jesus was to these men. Let me just give you some illustrations. Jesus was probably one of the first men to speak vision over these disciples' lives. Jesus saw who God made them to be. He spoke into that and he drew that out of them. Jesus was somehow 100% truth and 100% grace So that these men who kept making mistakes um, were able to be with somebody who just personified truth and grace in a way that no one else had ever done for them. Jesus made the Bible come alive for them. Do you remember the first person in your life who kind of just helped you understand the Bible and your heart ends up being knit to those initial Bible teachers who show you the truths and the beauty of God's word for the first time? Jesus was that for them. Jesus gave them a, a purpose to fight for. They didn't know who to fight for. Should I fight for Israel? Should I be passive? Should I go into the desert and just pray? Should I be with the zealots and fight Rome? Jesus is the first person to give them purpose to fight for. He showed them in ways they had never seen before the very practical, tangible power of God. He laughed with them. He cried with them. He prayed with them. They went on adventures all over the land of Israel together. This was an a friendship forged in laughter, joy, pain, trial, and purpose. This is 
by the way, one of the most meaningful teams humanity has ever experienced. And their leader, Jesus, says to them, I'm leaving and you're all alone. And what do you think they're going to respond with? Anxiety. In John 14, 18, he really speaks to this anxiety and he says to them, I will not leave you as orphans. What were they, what were they feeling like? They were feeling like they were being abandoned by their leader, their father figure, their savior, the person they put all their hopes and dreams and like you're abandoning us now? You can see where the anxiety is coming, to, coming, coming from. Go back to John 14, verse 25. These things <laughs> I've spoken to you while I'm still with you. But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. When your anxiety kicks in, the Holy Spirit, who is your helper, your teacher, and your encourager, he goes into full gear. Like you can know that when you are in the midst of anxiety, that the promise of God is that the Holy Spirit is there to help you. And if you want to move through it, the Holy Spirit is there to do everything he can to assist you. Again, one of, the, one of the biggest challenges of anxiety is that most people don't have the tools to work through it and to get through it. Look what he says next in verse 27. He says, Shalom, I leave with you. My shalom, I give to you. All right, two questions. Do they have Jesus's shalom? The answer is yes. Do they feel Jesus's shalom? The answer is No. Which, by the way, is an enormous encouragement. Because you might not feel shalom, but you most definitely have shalom. That shalom does not necessarily equal the the lack of emotional pain or anxiety. You might feel all crazy inside, but the peace of God, the shalom of God, uh, can still be there. The shalom of God isn't even contingent on how you feel. We all want the feelings to go away, do we not? But it is what you do with the feelings that tells you whether or not the shalom of God is entering into your chaos. In verse 27, he says this, not as the world gives shalom, do I give it to you? They give it contingently. They give it through medication, self-help, behavior modification. And what the spirit is doing is saying, no, I'm giving you actually something very different. I'm working in the inner person. I'm looking to create something very different than what the world is offering you. And then he says, let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Even to the very end of this, even as he's talking, even as he is giving them his shalom, he's still acknowledging that their hearts are troubled, their minds are racing. What if, what if, what if? I'm gonna share with you three so what's. Number one, Jesus's shalom is attainable. Uh, I, have, I have to say this again, because the Spirit and the Word and Jesus, they do not make promises they cannot keep. But the reality is the deeper and more challenging our anxiety is, oftentimes the larger and longer the battle is going to be to win it. But I want you to understand this, that shalom is not like your salvation. Your salvation Once you are saved, redeemed, forgiven through placing your faith in Jesus, it is the most permanent thing in your life and no emotion or circumstance can undo it. 
Shalom is actually a little bit different. For most of us in this room, shalom will be a lifelong battle where if you, by God's grace, walked into this room with unbelievable anxiety and you walk out, I cannot promise you that that shalom will be with you, that experience of shalom will be with you tonight or tomorrow morning. Because shalom is a regular, constant battle of our mind and our heart. That the shalom is always there for you to take, but so often we can give back into the what ifs and what ifs, and we can give and feed the monster of anxiety, and we're going to have to learn to go back. But I want you to understand this. Shalom is attainable, but it's not attainable like your salvation is attainable. That is permanent. This is something that you can actually give up for a period of time. But even if you give it up, the Spirit of God is your helper, your encourager, and your teacher, and is always ready to collaborate with you to fight back, to bring the shalom of God into the chaos of your mind and your heart. So what number two? Uh, Live out, we call this the three C's strategy. It's very simple, it is memorable, and it's just rooted in Scripture. The first C is simply this, cast. Cast your anxieties upon the Lord. Get on your face in prayer and beg God to help you. Tell him what you are feeling and experiencing. Yes, he knows, but our God is a relational God. And his call to us is to cast our fears, our troubles, our anxieties on him. That this is essential to take whatever human, emotional, physiological, spiritual experiences we have and to lay them before the Lord and to talk to him about it. Here's the second C. Confess. There's two sides to this. Uh, Number one is if you have fed the monster of anxiety, own it. Apologize for it. Talk to God. I'm sorry. Uh, it's a habit. I'm having a hard time breaking it. It gets in my brain. It goes over and over again. And, and I just keep giving into it. Own it. Confess. At the same time, there's, a, there's another side to this confession that I think is really important. I think it's really important for us to confess the things our anxiety has taken from us. The opportunities that it has stolen from us. It's interesting. When we went on this hike at, my, at, at Zion National Park, my wife had a great hike, except for me. <laughs> I had a terrible hike. And I wonder how many experiences in my life anxiety has taken, stolen from me that God wanted to give me. How many moments was I unable to be fully present and enjoy because I was so concerned about the what if in that moment? Number one, cast. Number two, confess. And then number three is confront it. This may be very redundant, but I'll say it. The only way to kill anxiety is to kill it. And if you're going to kill it, you have to face it. Uh, When I was 19 years old, um, I heard a sermon by John Piper, and he talked about his experience with anxiety and speaking in public. He talked about how it basically wrecked him emotionally. uh, He made a fool of himself. and, And the Lord told him that whenever you have the opportunity to speak in front of people, you have to say yes, no matter what you feel and no matter how stupid it makes you look. Well, rewind my life, go back to seventh grade, had a good teacher, and, um, but one day in class, she made a comment. And the comment kind of made fun of me a little bit. It was innocent, but my heart somehow took this. I remember the day. I don't remember what she said, but I remember the day. And something in my heart changed. 
so that I just could not speak in front of people. Um, and by the way, this anxiety would grow. I got to college and I had to do a presentation in class. Um, it was one of the worst things that you have ever seen. It was at Michigan State University and I had sweat through my entire shirt. And uh, so then I went back to my teacher and I asked the teacher, instead of, of uh, giving this speech, can I sing the speech? Now I'm the worst singer in the world, but I can play guitar. So my buddy and I actually came to class and they let me sing my speech. I got a D minus on that speech, by the way. I tried being 19. I, I, I've just become a pastor at a church, and my mom and dad are actually here from Detroit. I think you're back there. I can't see through the lights, but I think they're over there. And, and they come to church, and I have to get up, and I have not overcome my anxiety. And all I had to do was give announcements. I remember this day, and I gave announcements, and I'm like, welcome to. I'm sweating through everything, and I am so embarrassed. Um, that summer, I had to preach three times. I have never in my life felt more anxiety than I did the month leading up to the first sermon that I ever gave. This anxiety, by the way, lasted with me all the way until I was about 28 years old. And uh, most people, like I'd get up here at Village Church, and the amount of work I had to do before I would even get up and do an announcement was crazy. Now, in youth ministry or any kind of like group setting, if I was around you for about two or three or four months, I would start to acclimate and the nerves would start to go away. But doggone it, I'd sweat through and ruin so many dress shirts because my entire body physiologically would respond. My legs would quiver. My hands would quiver. My voice would quiver. It would take me about five to 10 minutes before I got into a sermon, before I kind of chilled out a little bit. And I would just go home embarrassed all the time. Well, when I was 19, I heard that Piper sermon and I said to myself, I'm going to do that. I'm not going to say no to any time that someone asked me to speak about the Bible or the gospel in front of people. And, and so the Lord called me, ironically, this petrified young man with all of this anxiety about speaking in front of people. And by his grace, it was, it was about a year or so, a little less than that before I became the interim lead pastor. The Lord, it was just like overnight, removed like 98% of the anxiety from me. Almost like a gift that going into this next season where I was going to have to be in front of our church a lot, obviously, that it would be one less thing that I would have to worry about as a young pastor becoming a senior pastor. And the Lord was so gracious, but I want to tell you that I spent year after year after year after year praying, particularly from about 18 years old on, praying that God would take this away from me. We'd sit in small groups and we would pray. There'd be three or four people and I, my voice would quiver and not out of emotion, but out of pure panic and fear when I would have to pray in front of a small group of people. I couldn't do basic things. And I didn't want it. I didn't choose it. Something happened in my brain in seventh grade, and it sent me on a, a multi-year frustrating experience with physical anxiety where my body would rebel against me. And I think for many people, like, you know exactly what that feels like. like you don't want this. And you don't, you don't really have the tools. And, and here's, I just want to, when I say face it, uh, I'm telling you, somebody who stood in front of thousands of people looked like a complete moron because I refused to let this thing stop me from being who God called me to be. And it was almost like right before I became a lead pastor, senior pastor, the Lord was like, I'm going to release you now from this. But that was many, many years. That was over a decade of intentionally praying. Nothing in my life has gotten more prayer except for my family and this ever in my life. This is it. So I get, I get what it means. I get the challenge. I get how dumb it can make us feel and look. But I'm telling you that we are a people that God wants to offer shalom to. And it's interesting because even in the midst of the anxiety, shalom was there not because of how I felt, but it was there because I decided to live and to do the things that God asked me to do. The shalom of God on me and in me didn't produce emotional fruit for a long time, 
But the shalom of God was in me every time I would obey God's word and go in front of people and open up his word despite how my body physiologically responded. Here's the third so what. Be gracious. First of all, be gracious with yourself. A couple weeks ago, um, one of my children said something about themselves that was not true. And in that moment, I stopped and I just said, that is not true. If you had a friend say that about himself, what would you do? And they said in that moment, I would stop them from saying that because that's not true. And I said, that's right. And you're my child. And nobody speaks about my child like that. So this idea that we, are, we, we abuse ourselves mentally and verbally, oh, I'm so, I'm so, I'm so. And one of the, one of the I think, just the most freeing practices is don't say something to yourself that the Spirit of God would not say to you. Don't speak words to yourself that Jesus himself would never speak to you. And, I, and there's this part of us that when we can't overcome something, we have this tendency just to mentally abuse ourselves. And I want to look at some of you and just say, your, your brain is not agreeing with the Holy Spirit, and it is not helping you overcome this thing. The Spirit wants to help you and to teach you and to encourage you, but you got to cooperate with him. And this leads me to my second, um, be gracious. Be gracious with others. Anxiety is typically never overcome with just a cute one-liner or a simple prayer. Typically, they have to learn, you and I have to learn the art of casting, confessing, and then confronting. I have found more times than not that, the, that, that God does not just release someone from anxiety, but works with us and collaborates with us as we lean into anxiety. And that's hard because don't you want ibuprofen for this? Right? Don't you want a quick fix? I am here to tell you, if you get that quick fix, praise God, thank him, do not rub it into people's faces. <laughs> because very few people get the quick fix. Most people have to cast before the Lord daily. They have to confess it on a regular basis. And they have to confront it because anxiety will not die until you kill it. Well, as we come to communion, I want to encourage you with a couple things. Number one, are you sinfully anxious? If you have placed your faith in Jesus, he has forgiven you. There is not condemnation for you. Even if you are reaping what you have sowed in that place. The spirit of God is for you. Here's the second encouragement. God himself has committed himself to you, despite your anxiety. When he saved you, he knew all the issues you had and were gonna have. And he has still committed himself to you forever. And third, he's given you his Holy Spirit and the spirit wants to bring shalom into this. And as we partake of communion in just a few minutes, I want to remind you of this because you may feel unworthy of partaking of communion. Nobody's worthy, ever. In fact, when you feel unworthy of partaking of communion, that's the time to partake of communion because you're not worthy. Jesus has made you worthy. And so if you are new with us here, maybe you've never been here and you're wondering, what do we do in communion? Uh, if you have placed your faith in Jesus, I don't care where you go to church, we want to invite you to partake of communion with us because we are one in Jesus. Uh, maybe you've got your kids here, and this is mom and dad, up to you guys. If your children have made a profession of faith in Jesus, you are welcome to let them celebrate communion with us. Kids, if your mom and dad say not yet, you are welcome to wait. Um, if you have never trusted in Jesus, maybe you're not a Christian, maybe you got dragged here, I don't know what, what story brings you here, but if you have never trusted in Jesus, here's what we ask, that when the elements um, are taken, that you not partake. Nobody will notice, nobody will make you feel bad, but... But the partaking of communion is a proclamation that you believe Jesus is your God and Savior, that you're a sinner, that he died on the cross for your sins and was raised from the dead. 
to partake of communion is to make a proclamation that you believe good works don't get you to heaven, but Jesus was good for you. That forgiveness happens by placing your faith in Jesus. I mean, these are huge declarations. So that as you partake of communion, if you don't believe those things, we just ask that you not partake. But maybe today you were just like sensing the spirit of God is like pressing on your heart. You're like, I have tried overcoming anxiety. I now believe in Jesus. He is the only way to do this. And you've maybe never made a profession of faith, but today you want to. Let your first profession of faith be the taking of these elements because as you take them, you are proclaiming Jesus is your God. You are asking him for forgiveness. You are proclaiming that you believe he died on the cross for your sins and was raised again from the dead. And if that's a decision you want to make today, partake of communion with us and then follow up with us. We'd love to encourage you and help you take whatever next step with the Lord that God is asking you to take. All right, we're going to have a time of silence. Uh, We're going to take about a minute or so. Uh, It's an opportunity for you to cast and to confess. And then when we're done, we're going to partake of the elements together. Uh, If you're in the room, they're under your seat. And if you're in one of our home locations, your hosts will hand them out to you. Let's have a minute with the Lord alone.